Good morning. Am I? Yes. Cool. As Ben said, uh, my name is Sarah. Um, let me give you another very warm welcome, especially if you're new. It's great to have you with us. How's everyone enjoyed the extra long bank holiday weekend? Been good? Um, so I'd imagine that some people here have very much enjoyed the actual Jubilee celebrations, um, or maybe you've got some to maybe look forward to later or maybe rearrange later. Um, maybe others have actually been a little bit less bothered by the Jubilee, but more interested in the extra day off work. That's been an absolute joy. Um, I wonder if some people have actually been working or it just really hasn't made much of a difference to your life. But anyway, as a nation, we have been celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. But I saw something on Twitter this week that caught my attention. Someone I follow who I actually don't think that they're a Christian, but they said this. We have to ask if we don't see redistribution of land and property, debt forgiveness, prisoners released, and the erasure of wage slavery, is it even a jubilee? And this really got me thinking, and that, mm, this made me think, maybe you've been thinking too. Um, so we've been celebrating the Queen's Jubilee, and she has had a lot of jubilees. Uh, I wasn't around for the silver, but there's the golden, the diamond, the platinum. And each of these is marking longevity, right? So it's looking to the past and recognizing how much time that she has been on the throne. But the concept of jubilee actually appears in the Bible. It way predates the British monarchy. And in the Bible, it is an economic idea. So the Old Testament is full of instructions to the people of God, from God, about how they should live together, uh, and particularly about how they should look after the poorest amongst them. And probably the most radical of all of these instructions is the Jubilee year. The instruction was that every 50 years, the people should have a whole year off to celebrate being the people of God, and society should be restored. So land and property that had been sold in times of desperation would be returned to the original family owners. Debts would be forgiven and bond servants should be released. And the idea of this was twofold. It was to remind the people that the land belonged to God and not to them. And it was to protect the people against both generational wealth and generational excess. So in God's kingdom, where God is eternally on the throne, everyone has enough. And so for ancient Israel, however people's circumstances changed, Every 50 years, society was meant to be reset so that everyone had a chance to thrive. Now, full disclosure, we actually don't know whether the Israelites ever managed to do this in reality. But what we do see is God's heart for his people and his heart for their approach to their money and their resources. And so my Twitter friend perhaps understood that a true jubilee is a time of restoration as well as celebration. So why am I telling you this? Well, it's actually not just because of the Jubilee, although it is a nice link. Um, the passage we've got today speaks to the position of wealth and resources in our lives. And it is important that we recognize that Jesus' words are connected in with the very character of God. God is concerned about those in need, and he is concerned about the place that our resources and our possessions have in our lives and in his kingdom. So let's dig into our passage. We are in the book of Matthew, uh, one of the accounts of Jesus' lives. We're starting in 
chapter 19, verse 16. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the words will come up on the screen. So it says, And behold, a young man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this passage is part of a a longer teaching block in the book of Matthew that has a lot of similar patterns. So there's a conversation or an incident that Jesus then uses to make a broader point about the kingdom of God. So we've seen it with marriage and divorce and singleness, and we've seen it with the role of children in the kingdom. And now Jesus has a conversation that he then uses to make a point about wealth and the kingdom of God. So what's going on? So Jesus is slowly traveling to Jerusalem, and en route, a man approaches and asks Jesus what good thing he can do to get eternal life. And I think at its heart, this is a question that continues to consume us today. It'll probably be worded differently, but this is perhaps a timeless question that has faced humanity throughout history and in different cultures. What's going to happen to me when I die? And how can I make sure that a good thing happens to me? So whatever people think about God, and even if they don't really know what they think about God, if there's any chance that there's some kind of selective afterlife. If there's any chance that there's a heaven, I definitely want to be there and not anywhere else I might be. So how do I ensure that I'm in the good camp? Well, try to be a good person by doing good things. That's the assumption that this man is coming with. What what good thing can I do to ensure eternal life for myself? But Jesus answers slightly oddly um, in what I tend to think of as classic Jesus style. He does not begin by answering the question. He begins by challenging the assumptions behind it. So he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, Jesus isn't undermining his own goodness here. 
Rather, he is encouraging the man to think about where his standard of goodness comes from. There is only one who is truly good, and that is God alone. So rather than think about what actions are good, Jesus points to the one who is, in his very nature, truly good. And God, who is truly good, sets the standard for goodness. So this is a Jewish man, and God has already shown him what is good. He has given him the law and prophets. So that's what we would call the Old Testament, where God has set out what it means for someone to live well. So Jesus quotes some of the Ten Commandments and the summary command of love your neighbor as yourself. But the man says that he has followed this law all his life. Now, I don't know if he is lacking self-awareness or whether he's lying, or maybe he really does think, before God, I have, I have done this. I don't know. But he asks, what else can I do? He says, I've done this, what else? Maybe he's still doubting, or maybe he is looking for that one extra special good deed that he can do to prove his status and to ensure his place in eternal life. But Jesus again takes him by surprise. He says, sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. I sometimes feel like Jesus is surprisingly unbothered by gaining followers. He could not make it less appealing for this man. <laughs> What's he doing? And this man does say no. He, he goes away sorrowful. Or the word is actually is stronger. It's like grieving because he has many possessions. And so the man leaves sad. And Jesus uses this to make an astounding comment about the kingdom of God. He turns to his disciples and he says, Truly, I tell you, only with difficulty will a rich man, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And if they or we are tempted in that moment to think difficult, yes, but not impossible, Jesus reiterates with clarity. He says, it is easier for a camel, the biggest known animal in the region, to go through the eye of a needle. And commentators agree, this is not a metaphor for anything else. He just means a needle. Camel, needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And if you're thinking that that sounds crazy, well, take heart, you are in exactly the same position as the disciples. We learn that they are greatly astonished, and they ask, if this is the case, who then can be saved? And here they're using saved, kingdom, eternal life. There's some nuances, but essentially these are talking about the same thing. See, the disciples, like most in their culture, saw wealth as a sign of blessing from God. So those with many possessions, like this young man, were especially blessed. So if he will struggle to get in, who can? Well, ultimately, no one, and that is the point. So as Jesus says to them, with humans, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we know that at this very moment, Jesus is on his way south to Jerusalem, where he knows that he will be arrested and he will be killed. That though he is God himself, and he himself has done no wrong, he will die to pay the price for our wrongdoing. And by his death and resurrection, he establishes his kingdom and wins for us eternal life. And it is only by his death and resurrection that we can be saved or get eternal life, or enter the kingdom. So neither our circumstances nor our actions can grant us entry into the kingdom. 
The rich are not saved by their wealth. The poor are not saved by their poverty. And none of us can be saved by our individual acts of goodness alone. There is no one-time good deed that we can do that will win us a place in the kingdom of God. There is only the once-for-all good deed of Jesus himself, the one who is truly good. He is our way into life, and he has won it for us completely. And that should make us go, hallelujah, hooray. And it's okay, it's morning, whatever. But uh, (laughs) that is such good news for us. So what do we then do with all of the talk about money and wealth in this passage? If that's how we're saved, what do we do with the fact that Jesus doesn't say it's difficult for everyone to enter the kingdom? He says it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Jesus is concerned about the relationship between wealth and discipleship, and so we should be as well. So there's a few things that I want to draw out of the passage. And the first point is this. Following Jesus means a radical reshaping of priorities. Following Jesus means a radical reshaping of priorities. So for the young man in the story, the command is direct and total. Sell everything, not loan. There's no going back to it. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. Now, it's important to note that this is a two-part single instruction. It's sell and give I get rid of the things that are holding you here and turn and follow Jesus. And this is clearly an instruction to one man. Jesus does not give this instruction to all of his followers. But there is a principle here that is for all of us, which is that following Jesus means turning from anything the world has to offer and towards him. It is to say that Jesus is king, And money, wealth, the power or the comfort that come with that, any earthly thing is not. And Jesus has already made it clear that it is not possible to have both. We cannot serve both him and money. And for his early followers, this had an immediate and material outworking. So already in the story, we've seen Peter and other disciples leave businesses behind to physically follow Jesus around the country. We have seen people make their houses available to Jesus whenever he needs it for his ministry. We've seen people like Zacchaeus who make astounding offerings because they have seen the invitation of Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we see people selling property and giving the money to the work of the church. And in case we're tempted to think that these these sacrificial acts are kind of only for the wealthy, we also see the Apostle Paul commend the churches who are giving, giving what they can despite their own poverty in response to a famine elsewhere in the world. Following Jesus meant a radical reshaping of their priorities. And this is the case for us too. Possibly as a one-time thing when we first decide to follow Jesus, but also as a daily decision to align ourselves with his kingdom priorities. So what are his kingdom priorities? Um, So I started by talking about the Old Testament principle of jubilee. And Jesus talks about his ministry as bringing that about. He says he came to announce good news for the poor, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is a spiritual truth. Our debts are forgiven. We are set free from captivity to sin and death. 
we enter a kingdom of life. And there is a material reality to this. Following Jesus has always meant, in some way or another, helping those in need and helping those people to thrive. So as Jesus' followers, every day we live in and bring the Jubilee. So we proclaim the gospel of Jesus that he alone can save. And with everything we have, be it much or little, we submit to the purposes of God. And I think it does mean everything we have. We might not all be instructed to physically sell everything, but I think the principle still applies. One of the commentators, a guy called Craig Blomberg, says, Jesus commands Christians to use all their possessions, not just some fixed percentage of them, for kingdom priorities. True Christian stewardship will examine mortgages, credit, giving, insurance, investments, and a whole host of areas of life not often brought under Christ's lordship. I find that quite a challenge, and I wonder how can we grow in this together? Well, my husband and I have been on a bit of a journey with this in the last year. Along with some Christian friends, we decided as a group that we would give each other full access to our financial situations. So we sent over information about what we earn, what we own, and three months of bank statements that showed our general habits. Uh, they did the same for us. So why did we do this? Well, Jesus says that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. And so giving someone access to your bank statements is like opening up your heart and saying, hey friend, come and help me out. I want my heart to look like Jesus. I want my priorities to look like his. So here's my heart. What do you see? And we would meet and we would discuss and we would encourage each other and challenge each other and discuss together the dilemmas of living according to God's priorities in our culture and in our time. And I wonder if that is something that you might consider doing in a way that feels good and comfortable for you. Find people you trust to share this with. Perhaps people whose situation or background is quite different to yours. Get a different perspective on your assumptions. We can continue on this journey together as we seek to honor God with everything we have. My second point from the passage is this. Earthly riches might be a spiritual hindrance. Earthly riches might be a spiritual hindrance. I want you to come with me on a little thought experiment. Bear with me on this. So let's imagine that you get an unexpected windfall. So maybe some inheritance or a pay rise or my personal favorite, the tax rebate. <laughs> Great day. And so you come to church all excited. And maybe you find Ben and you say, hey, Ben, I got a massive amount of cash this week. And Ben says, oh, no, are you OK? And you think, OK, Ben's busy. He's tired. He clearly hasn't understood. And so you say, no, 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 Ben, I got money. And Ben says, right, well, I would love to stand with you in prayer in this. Now, it's a thought experiment. It's not reality. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that that is how we should respond. But I think the fact that it is, at least to my mind, it's a bit ridiculous to think of that being how we respond to such a circumstance, suggests that we don't really believe that earthly riches might be a hindrance to our walk with God. Sometimes a blessing, absolutely, but sometimes a hindrance. 
I find it helpful sometimes to think of money or earthly riches a bit like dynamite. Enormously useful, an amazing tool and able to bring about all kinds of good, but also extremely powerful, dangerous to cling too tight to, and able to cause absolute havoc if we're not careful. Jesus says it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And later on, the Apostle Paul tells us that the desire for riches can become a temptation and a snare for us. And James tells us that if our riches come by unfair gain or exploitation, we should weep and howl. Earthly riches might be a spiritual hindrance. So why? Why is God concerned about this? Well, as we see in this passage, wealth can be a barrier to turning to Jesus in the first place. It can trick us into thinking that we don't need Jesus, that we've already got the good life. I think it is quite hard or even scary to see Jesus as worth everything when what it feels like your everything is, is quite valuable. But I think it can also be a barrier to our ongoing discipleship. Certainly I have found that money or possessions, the desire for them, can make me forget who it is that I follow. So a slight change in my circumstances, up or down, and I'm tempted to respond in joy because I'm rich, or in fear because I'm not. And I think if we don't keep it in its proper place in our lives, money can trick us into thinking that it alone can bring comfort or security that will satisfy. So like the Pied Piper, it kind of plays its tune and we follow along, not realizing that we're being led astray. But Justin Welby, the, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, in his book about money says, the church dances to a different tune and sees a different vision because we have a different king on the throne. And so with the good God on the throne, we can overcome these temptations. And we also don't need to fear lack. I'm really aware that as we sit here this morning, as a nation, as a world, we are facing a cost of living crisis. Families are struggling. Food bank use is going up. Donations are going down. And it is scary. And so for those of us who are feeling that strain, know that God promises to provide everything we need. Everything that we need, he has promised to provide. And so we still can seek first his kingdom. We can only give from what we have. And for those of us who find ourselves with plenty, well, we might be the answer to others' needs. Let's be a Jubilee community together and be encouraged by the words that Paul writes to Timothy, which will come up on the screen. Paul writes to Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Which brings me to my final point. Kingdom sacrifice is great gain. Kingdom sacrifice is great gain. And we've heard little snippets throughout of this idea of treasure in, in the giving. And towards the end of our passage, Peter says what probably all of the other disciples are thinking. He says, what about us? He says, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? The young man said no, but we said yes. So what about us? And Jesus, perhaps surprisingly, doesn't rebuke Peter for fear or for self-interest here. He gives this amazing promise that everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And this is not an exhaustive list of sacrificial acts, nor is it a literal equation that if I give away my house, I will get a hundred. The point is that the abundance of life with Jesus far outweighs whatever we give. When we sacrifice for the kingdom, we become a little bit more like Jesus, who gave everything to his very life for us. So when we say, Jesus, you are king over my life, and therefore whatever that might look like for other people, I will follow you. We find that we don't lose, we gain. Don't get me wrong, these sacrifices are costly. And I think I can see many examples in the room of people who know that. It's not that they don't cost. But Jesus says there is joy and there is abundance in the giving. Here and now, as we live life with him in his spirit here and through eternity. Jesus gives us a picture of a family, that's us, and an eternal home, an unshakable promise of life with him that is unimaginably more glorious than anything this world can offer. So as the band come up and we come to a close, I want to encourage us to continue on this journey together, that as we daily put him in his rightful place over our wealth and over our possessions, the stuff that might hold us down, we will see the goodness of God for ourselves and for our lives here as a community. We have a king on the throne who is truly good, and we have an eternal promise to look forward to and so I really believe that as we follow Jesus in this, we will receive the life that is truly life.